From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Anna Bernasek. Hi, and welcome to Forward Thinking. I'm Michael Chewy. And I'm Anna Bernasek. Hey, Anna. As a parent to two daughters, what do you try to tell them about the working world and their careers? <laughs> That's a good question, Michael. I've got two teenage girls, and it's often on my mind. You know, I don't feel like I've got really good answers. I mean, I try to encourage them to learn and experience life as much as possible and really invest in developing themselves and their skills. But, you know, on the piece about women in the workplace, I really don't know what to tell them. And I also wonder about the impact of technology. Those are really important topics. And fortunately, something that today's guest, Laura Tyson, gets into. For instance, where are jobs going from here? And you know, what does that future mean for gender equality, diversity, and inclusion? And we should point out for our listeners that she's the well-known economist who also chaired the President's Council of Economic Advisors during the Clinton administration. Indeed. We had a great discussion covering the impacts of COVID-19 on jobs, and also what we can learn from a country like Germany about apprenticeship and the minimum wage. Let's take a listen. Laura Tyson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you. Terrific. You know what? If you don't mind, let's start with your story. You know, in addition to being a well-known academic and researcher, like lots of other prominent economists, you've also actually been in the arena as a policymaker amongst your other duties. Uh, you chair the, the White House Council of Economic Advisors. How did you get where you are now? Well, I, th- I think I discovered economics in college. I wanted always to think about economics as applied to policy. I always felt that this was a tool, a discipline to address social challenges, economic challenges that I wanted to do something about. So ended up getting a PhD in economics uh, at MIT. There I was able to work with a number of world-famous economists who also had, from the beginning, wanted to combine economics, and policy. So I found myself a pathway which led to Berkeley, the University of California, Berkeley, which I liked very, very much because it's very interdisciplinary. This is a campus that allows for easy work with political scientists, sociologists, uh, information technologists. I, I really liked that. It was not narrow. It was very broad. And I ended up uh, teaching in a variety of different ways, from the most basic Econ 1 class to advanced graduate courses in, you know, analytics of, of economic planning. And on the side, I was doing my academic research, which I had to do. And then on the side, I was doing policy research. And I ended up doing things for like Mario Cuomo when he was governor of New York, And even Ronald Reagan, I had a commission on competitiveness based in California, and I ended up working on that. I was always, politically speaking, a Democrat. Policy, to me, is more important than politics. So you could see I was doing uh, sort of policy for both sides of the aisle. Uh, And it was really through that process. Uh, It led to one other step. I ended up catching the attention of Harvard Business School They have a really great course called Biggie, Business, Government, and the International Economy. It's a required course. And they wanted me to come and be a faculty member in that class. I went there. And a key part of this story is I got to know Bob Reich and a number of people at the Kennedy School right across the river. So uh, it was really through that set of connections that I ended up finding myself 
working for Bill Clinton. So the Bill Clinton connection came from economics, policy, Cuomo, Bob Reich, Kennedy School, Harvard Business School, uh, to, to, the, to the White House. So that's a remarkable story. And, you know, I think we'll come back to, you know, questions about diversity later. But, you know, in, in several points, you mentioned those who sponsored you, who, who created opportunities for you, uh, as well as being mentors for you. I'm curious, you know, even going back to college where you said your awakening to the interest in uh, economics happened. How did that happen? Was it Econ 1 that you suddenly said, wow, this is really interesting stuff? It was. It was pretty much Econ 1, I have to say. It was pretty much. In fact, I liked Econ 1 so much that I immediately enrolled for the, the next level micro and macro. And then the Econ faculty members said, maybe you should take one before the other. I said, no, no, I want to take both. I want to take both. I went to Smith College. It's important to say that at Smith College, in my time, the late 60s, early 70s, economics was the second or third most popular discipline. It was not a male discipline, because what, what's a male discipline? You're at a female institution. No one even thought about it. It's just like it was the discipline. So uh, I didn't think about it that way. When I applied to MIT, MIT was so happy to find a woman. They had very few female applicants to their PhD program. Uh, I got great scores on the GRE. I had really strong credentials to go into that program. But MIT, every single moment when I felt like, God, this is too hard for me. These, these guys in my class already have master's degrees. And those, they would say, no, 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 you, you absolutely can do it. Just stick with it. It's fine. It's okay. You will be fine. So they were great. And then I would say clearly getting my first academic job, it was the field. I was then working in international and comparative, now called political economy. Uh, the field, they were looking for someone. I was from MIT and I was a woman. I was like a threefer. I was like, oh my God, we got an MIT female in the field we want. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I will say that, yes, at every moment of major transitions in my career, I have had uh, sponsor support, and it has been primarily male sponsor support. However, I want to give you two examples where that's not true. I had a lot of work while I was an assistant professor on World Bank projects, which are, many of which are still quoted in ResearchGate. That was a female economist named Urban Edelman, who was at that time the chief economist at the World Bank, before they even had such a title, chief economist. She was it. She was a very well-known economist of her generation and very, very few women at all. And then I would point out Hillary Clinton because when President Clinton was putting together his cabinet, it mattered immensely to him, but it also mattered to his primary political and personal advisor, Hillary Clinton, that it be diverse and that gender be significantly represented. So it, it really was I, I, absolutely a factor in those transitions, very important in my lifetime. And we're sort of at a unique moment in the profession, right? So, you know, the current chief economist of the World Bank is a woman, managing director of the IMF. Uh, you have Secretary Yellen at Commerce, Christine Lagarde at, at European Central Bank. But that said, the reason it's remarkable is because it is a bit unusual. Uh, first of all, also, you know, the person who has your old job, Cecilia Rouse, actually is a woman of color as well, at uh, you know, chairing the CEA. But largely, the field has been more male and pale during its history than anything else. And so how do you see the field evolving? 
I tend to view the evidence as all very positive. I, you know, I've done work on gender in my life. I've been involved since the beginning of, with the Gender Parity Project at the World Economic Forum. I was an advisor on the Gender Parity Project at McKinsey Global Institute, a terrific, terrific set of research uh, and results and analysis. I've seen the progress, and I've also seen that the progress is slow, but the pace is... The pace is not the pace. It's going to close these gaps very quickly. Okay, that, that's what I would say. So you could say the positive is right direction. It is occurring. It's not reversing. You can also say, yes, but there are significant gaps that remain. You know, there are a number of websites and, and social networking sites where Women in economics will complain about their treatment, their treatment by their um, male faculty advisors, their treatment by their colleagues, by their peers, by the male graduate students that they are competing with for jobs. So we've still got a, a lot of things we must do to improve. I will say my sense of academia, the Haas School, the economics department, the University of California more generally, my sense of boards, I'm on a number of corporate boards, is that the commitment to diversity and inclusion is no longer just a verbal commitment, a kind of feel-good commitment. Everybody is taking action. They are taking action and they're measuring their action. Okay, how are we doing in terms of diversity of the talent pool? So the McKinsey studies and the World Economic Forum studies show that what really matters is what does the pipeline look like? Because we've made a lot of progress almost everywhere now in terms of, I'm talking now about gender, we'll get pretty good gender representation at the beginning of the pipeline. But then as you move up, the women tend to drop out, they tend to do something else, they tend to not get promoted forward, the pipeline gets narrower and narrower. So there's got to be a lot of work done on that. And a lot of organizations now are looking exactly at that. And large organizations, universities and businesses that I've been involved with are really working on that problem. And we've certainly seen that globally in our MGI research as well. Laura, if I could just continue on that thread, um, you know, you said that there hasn't been much backsliding within the, the field of economics, um, although, you know, if you look at the impact of the pandemic, I think some, some research would suggest it might have set back some of the gains that women have had in the workforce, perhaps by as much as a generation. I would love to get your reflections on that. So what I would say is, look, we always knew, and around the world, including in the advanced industrial countries, the uneven distribution of the burden of care and the burden of child rearing on women is a factor. It, it was a factor pre-pandemic. It was exposed, highlighted by the pandemic because once schools and childcare facilities and the normal way you kind of or, a woman would organize her life so that she could work and deal with those responsibilities, those were gone. So many, many women, yes, chose to say, uh, I'm just going to have to cut back. I'm going to have to drop out. I'm going to have to deal with this other responsibility. I hope it's not the case that it is a setback of that amount of time. What I hope 
is that policymakers uh, around the world recognize that what the the child care care responsibilities that women shoulder disproportionately to try to come up with social public solutions to help that. So the good news interpretation would be it becomes a prod to policy to improve things. If you look at the at the Biden infrastructure plans, one of them, which is really social infrastructure and health infrastructure, it's really also care infrastructure. <laughs> in order for people to be productive in the workplace, they also need to have supportive social care infrastructure. And if I might add a, uh, if I might ask a naive question, um, why does it matter? I mean, I, you can make an argument for equity. You can make an argument for uh, equality from a moral standpoint, but from an economic standpoint, why does diversity inclusion matter? I think it's a matter of human capital. It's a matter of talent. It's a matter of evidence mounting over time. And again, the MGI study showed a lot of this evidence. Uh, the World Economic Forum showed a lot of this evidence. We we know that there is a significant effect of the labor force participation rates of women and economic growth. We know that. We know that labor force participation rates of women distributed across sectors of the economy to look similar to that distribution uh, across the economy of men has an even higher growth because you're putting, because women's productivity is going into the sectors of the economy where productivity returns are the highest. So I would say simply from a growth and productivity point of view, this there's a very strong economic argument. For diversity as well, there is evidence that diversity of teams, diversity of input, diversity of perspective, diversity of education leads to better solutions and more effective solutions. And so I think you get the benefits of labor force participation, growth, productivity, better decision-making. Clearly, that's all been documented. All the evidence keeps accumulating to demonstrate that. What gives you the most hope with regard to diversity, inclusion, and perhaps privilege? I would say role models and mentorship. I, I, I think in my own life, clearly, and I've also seen the research on this, you can mobilize, think about young, I, you know, I think about young girls because I have two granddaughters, okay? Their notion that they can do anything, which is just a real notion, okay? It's a real notion. Uh, my granddaughter says, I want to be everything. I said, well, you probably don't want to be everything. I want to be everything, okay. I think that's because the messaging is coming through so clearly. And you start that at a very young age and it's going to lead people to creativity, to talent development, to thinking about their future in ways which they would not have been able to do before. So I'm very optimistic about role models and talent development and the messaging to diverse talent. You know, you're going to have a real opportunity. Go for it. If we could, you know, segue to a very related uh, topic, um, you know, you and I have have had a dialogue for a while on the future of work, and I know that's been an object of study for you and your research as well. I know that you spent some time in Germany, you know, about a year and a half ago, for instance, to try to understand. Uh, and you know, we we have listeners in Germany, we have listeners uh, in the U.S. and around the world. I'd love to hear about you know what you learned there. 
there's a lot of thought and a lot of evidence that there are ways for people who, who may not want the full four-year college experience to actually do some apprenticeship organized training. The, most, the best of this is done by sectors uh, and the best of this is done by business involvement. And the German case has always had that. So the German case has, the businesses are deeply involved in designing the curriculum. The curriculum changes over time. I, I was there when they were actually thinking about new kinds of accounting curriculum that would deal with digitalization of accounting. Okay, so basically, okay, if you were going to train people for an accounting career through an apprenticeship approach as opposed to a college approach, what do you teach them? And again, I would emphasize the importance of having the business employer engagement in the design of the curriculum. And then, of course, the businesses themselves provide apprenticeships for the students. I mean, you basically, part of your your study is to go and work at a firm. And that has continued to be a strength of Germany. If you look at uh, productivity numbers in Germany, you will see that they're really quite uh, comparable to U.S. productivity numbers. Uh, and they have managed in manufacturing and in a couple of key sectors to really have productivity growth, which is stronger than the U.S. And the view of, of noted economists, including Martin Bailey, who's also an MGI economic advisor, is that the apprenticeship training approach in Germany is part of the reason why that is the case. Okay, so I, I studied that. Look, they also had a very serious minimum wage uh, policy introduced in 2015. If you fast forward, the evidence so far is it absolutely did not lead to a reduction in employment, did not lead to a reduction in growth, led to a reduction in wage inequality. That's what it led to, a reduction in wage inequality, okay? So instead of having the minimum wage low and the productivity levels low, they basically said, here's the minimum wage, this is now a federal policy, and then the firms upped the productivity. It's very, very interesting. It's a real world experiment from 2015 to today, uh, and it worked, it worked. Uh, when we have debates in the United States about minimum wages, I always say, well, you, know, you might want to look at Germany because they had this debate, but they did it, and this is what happened. <laughs> One of the other things that uh, people have said is if wages go up, that creates more incentives to substitute capital for labor. And so we've talked about automation. We've talked about artificial intelligence. What have you learned, either Germany or elsewhere, about you know, how work will evolve given these technological advancements? I do think that tax incentives do matter. In Germany, in the US, in the other advanced industrial countries that I have looked at enough to be able to have an opinion, you see that taxation tends to add to the cost of labor and reduce the cost of capital. So we say, okay, what that is gonna do over time is encourage uh, capital to substitute for labor wherever it can. And I think that is, a real consideration. On the other hand, I am not one of the people, there are some people who say, well, if we just tax the capital enough, we could discourage this technological change and we could, we could change the trajectory. I, I personally don't think that's true. I mean that we have had a series of automation technologies which 
automate things that can be done by humans. Okay, that's the case. So humans are displaced. On the other hand, new things that humans can do are created, and I tend to think the key challenges then are to transition challenges for those who have to move from one job to another. Training challenges, either to skill for the new jobs or to upskill, either skill at the apprenticeship level or upskill during workers、uh, during work life. We have to focus on that kind of transition, and we have to focus on making sure there's enough. Now, I'll be a true macro economist here. Aggregate demand in the system. Okay, if not, you're going to have all this technology creating these wonderful new things. But not much demand for them because people don't have incomes to to buy them. So I, I do want to say that monetary and fiscal policy are real important in the background here. <laughs> so yes, we'll get displacement, and I do worry about that. But we will end up with new jobs. The really good news here is over the past thirty years, if you look at all the advanced industrial countries, what you see is that there has been employment polarization, and that means. The middle skill, middle wage jobs as a share of total employment have declined. There's been an increase in low skill, lower wage jobs, but there's been a much bigger increase in upper skill, upper income jobs. The center has collapsed a little bit, but the top has been growing. That's the upskill, new skill, reskill, new jobs. That's really great news. Yes, we have some go- stuff going on at the bottom, and we need to worry about that. We need to worry about what to do with those kinds of jobs. Maybe there will always be such jobs, but then the question is, what is the living wage? How do we make those jobs, which may end up being relatively low skill, relatively low wage, how do we make them better? Yeah, you described it as a positive story. It's definitely a positive story for one side of the barbell. It's a much more challenging story for the other side. What needs to happen? Well, I'm going to start with what I said happened in Germany, which is you you need to actually say that there's a some wage income security for those jobs. That's part of it. Okay, I think there should also be. Uh, to the extent possible, career、uh, transitions. So I know, for example, that Walmart has been working hard on this. So you bring in someone at a very low level, low wage, low skill job, and you train them in house to move through more store management or operations management. So over time, they see a career path. It's not just stuck forever in the entry level. In the German system, it's the apprenticeships that do that. Because, for example, let's take one that I, you know, I, I'm a woman. I、oh, you probably do this too. Go to hairdressers. Okay, in Germany, hairdressing is it's like a serious, it's a serious training program. They're really good at it too. By the way, the training program pays off in terms of the skills you get when you go in to get your hair done. Okay, the guy that I ended up talking with a lot. You know, he'd started in the simplest program. He ended up with a master's degree. He now is developing curriculum. He is like, you know, he's running a salon, but curriculum, career development—not just the basic living wage, but is there a way up, out, through? That's important. Look, I also think it's really important that we have benefits associated with work 
We in the U.S., we don't have a universal health care system. We don't have a universal time off system. I mean, Germany, there's time off. People, everybody knows they're going to get time off. That is part of the right of your employment is to have time off. <laughs> so I think we have to think hard about what kinds of benefits uh, to offer to, to workers. And uh, of course, as more and more workers become independent contractors, gig workers, that becomes even more of a challenge. I mean, Germany really is working hard on this. Europeans are working hard on this to try to figure out, well, then what's the, if it's not a normal employment contract, it's not, the unions aren't involved, the sector's not involved, what's the sector here? How do we put together protections? I think the United States, it's really interesting. We may start to do that now because Almost by accident, we fell into it. During the pandemic, there was a decision to provide unemployment insurance to gig workers. That was entirely, it wasn't in the system. It wasn't part of the system. There's no way to finance it. And we did it. So I think there's going to be ongoing development of what are benefits that all workers should receive as a result of employment And are they portable, the portable benefits? If you carry them from employer to employer as a gig worker, they should move with you. Got it. I, if I could pull on uh, some of the threads that you just mentioned, um, I want to go back to a slightly wonky one. You, you mentioned, the, for example, the dialogue going about uh, aggregate demand. Could you unpack that for folks who aren't necessarily as, as deeply immersed in the dialogue? I think the concern significantly comes from the fact that the recovery from the Great Recession, the Great Financial Recession, the 2007-2009 period, that that was really slow. Employment levels only got back to pre-Great Recession highs, right, just right before the pandemic. Germany did a little better. Germany actually did better. So they, they had gotten back actually a couple of years earlier than the U.S. had done. So they had a little more uh, stimulus towards the end. But when people look at the slow, anemic recovery, they say the problem was uh, there wasn't enough spending power. Consumers did not have enough spending power. They didn't have enough income. Investors, therefore, capital investment company was looking and say, well, I don't see the demand growing from my products, so I'm not going to invest a lot either. So then you have consumption plus investment not growing at any rapid pace. So therefore, you just don't get the demand for goods and services that lead to employment. So we have to think about funding consumption demand and funding investment demand. Monetary policy does both to some extent. So the low interest rate environment is meant to be an environment which encourages interest-sensitive spending to occur because the interest rates are so low. We're, we're seeing that right now in the boom in the housing market in the United States. Consumption demand, I think coming out of the pandemic, what's really interesting is we had so much fiscal stimulus during the pandemic. Money just coming into households. But they did not have the normal ways to spend it. So there was a lot of pent up demand and a lot of savings. And now it's, it's almost like the end of a war, the end of a war on the pandemic and people are going out and spending. So that's why the economy is really, I think, in a, in a very strong, strong recovery period. And remarkable in some ways that in fact, 
a lot of it was just direct fiscal transfers, right? It just, this is money. Absolutely right. And you know, the funny thing is, again, in the Great Recession, the Obama administration did some of that. But everybody at that point was much more, I just say, unwilling to allow the government to run the kinds of deficits that need to occur during this kind of pandemic recession. Deficits are not just the result of policy, they're results of the economy. And the economy, if the economy slows down dramatically, then government revenues are going to slow down. And if, if government spending on things like unemployment insurance is not going to slow down, you're going to get a deficit. If you go back to 2010, 2011, 2009, God, there was all this discussion. Oh, my goodness, we're going to have a debt crisis. There's going to be too much debt. Oh, the deficit is unsustainable. It's going to cause capital markets to crash. None of that was true. None of it happened. I mean, those were theories. They were were theories. There was no measure. I remember at the time, it was so frustrating because people would say, if you pass the debt to GDP ratio of 75, somehow or other, that's going to be run the risk of a capital market crash. But no, that's just not true. That number came from nowhere, as far as I know. So the point is, but that kind of theorizing led to trepidation about very dramatic fiscal infusions of stimulus. And I think this time around, people were so unnerved by the ferocity and the suddenness of the pandemic that they just said, we've got to do, this is like a war, we've got to just do a major response. And that was right. That was exactly right. And so now some people are worried about inflation. We see very high inflation now. Others argue that it's transitory. What do you think? I usually start answering that question by noting that as a, you know, one of the things the Council of Economic Advisors has to do, so CeCe Rice has to do, Rouse has to do this, as I had, is you go out and you don't ever predict what the numbers are going to be, but you talk about the numbers. But you do have to do the underlying numbers, macro numbers for the budget. And then you kind of look at all the forecasts. And what, what you see is that over time, economists are pretty good on output growth. They're pretty good. They're pretty good on predicting the direction and the magnitude of output growth. They're decent on employment growth. They are really quite much weaker on inflation, and they're impossibly bad on interest rates. I mean, we we know that some of the standard theories behind inflation, the Phillips curve theory relating wage growth to price inflation, that whole relationship has not held up. The parameters are all wrong. So we don't know how much wage inflation leads to how much price inflation we we do. So we just need to be careful. Uh, We'll have to come back to this at another time. But one of the things that I'm most curious about as someone who also studies models and analytics is why hasn't the profession gotten better at it? If you look at weather prediction, you can see these curves where our actual ability to predict gets better over time. And why isn't economics getting better at it? I think it's just a a mystery I'd love to dive into. On your point about the weather uh, and prediction, John Maynard Keynes had many insights. And one was the 
importance of animal spirits. How do you predict the degree to which investors are willing to have a risk premium or are willing to forego a risk premium altogether? So one of the things that was largely unexplained going into the great financial recession is why there was just no evidence of any demand by investors for risk protection of any sort, or they thought they were doing risk protection by kind of default swaps, which turned out to be not risk protection at all, okay? So why, 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 why? I think it's easier with the weather because the weather doesn't involve human rationality or human irrationality or human animal spirits. How do you model that? I leave that to you, Michael. (laughs) Terrific. Well, we'll have to discuss this more. Laura Tyson, thank you for joining us. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Anna Bernasek. Our producer is Lauren Melling, and our audio engineer is Colin Warren. <laughs>